Welcome to the I'm Possible podcast. My name is Simon Drew and I'm your host as we delve into the lives of my wonderful individual and unique guests. With a series of direct questions, my intention is to bring a deeper understanding of how humans learn to first survive and then thrive in this lifetime. My guests will be invited to reflect on their journey so far and the keys to their own growth and the best and worst of experiences. Please join me as we explore together the I'm Possible Life. Today's guest is Jeffrey Oakes, my friend Jeffrey Oakes, a spiritual gangster, samurai, general, pirate, Jedi Knight, warrior poet, and the greatest, one of the greatest, if not the greatest, human I've ever met. Welcome, Jeffrey. Thank you. It's great to be here, Simon, and thank you so much for the compliment I received. And and what we're going to start with is, please explain the uh, the references in your introduction there. Uh, where did all this come from? Mm, what a, what a cool question. Well, really, it came straight from my Instagram bio. Now, <laughs> where it came from prior to that <laughs> is, um, you know, these are all things that I wanted to be when I was a kid. So I grew up and became them. Um, the the purpose behind putting that into a bio on Instagram when I would otherwise be um, searching for business or, you know, trying to give a little insight into who I am, it it serves a purpose of being a bit of a filter. For instance, if someone is curious about me and working with me, if they look at my Instagram bio and they see that, one of two things is going to happen. They're going to see that, say, this is ridiculous. I don't know who this guy <laughs> is, but that's all I need to know. I'm going to go on to the next, the next. Or they're going to see that and think that's, that's pretty cool or that's intriguing. Maybe there's some part of them that wanted to be those things when they were young too. And then start the conversation of how do I help them become those things? So it's ultimately, it's, it's a filter, man. Um, it's one of the first ways that I kind of discern who's going who's gonna to come closer into my circle and, and who's not. Cool. I love that. Yeah, um, you did. Uh, you have it. I have remembered that you'd explained that to me before, right now. Um, so I do recall that now. But you, you're absolutely right. That I can see how a lot of people would come to that and go, oh, yeah, "No, that just I, the, the guy's a nutcase." Yeah, yeah, and they're right. <laughs> so it's okay. <laughs> well, yeah, and, and in a good way, right? And then there'll be other people come to it and go, "Wow, that sounds interesting. That sounds intriguing. That's adventure. Right? That, that's somebody who's out there doing magical things, and uh, that's really cool. I really yeah, love that." They're gonna look at that and go, "That guy's th- my kind of nutcase." Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, this guy resonates with me already com- completely. So let's move on to the, uh, the 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 powerful questions today in today's podcast. Please paint a backdrop of your early life up to adulthood the where's, who's, what's and how's of your upbringings, key events and situations until you fled the nest. Yeah, my, uh, you know, the first key event in my life was being conceived on the shores of Lake Huron in a van. 
So the story goes. Really? Truthfully? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, that's that's the that's the story, the picture that has been painted of <laughs> you know what would have become my first, some of my first moments um, as a you know merging of cells. Um, so Lake Lake Huron is one of the the great lakes that is connected to the great state of Michigan, where I have spent most of my life. I you know, after being conceived on the shores of Lake Huron, I, I grew up um, in a town called Dearborn, which is a little bit outside of Detroit, Michigan. And that's where we've stayed uh, for a good portion of our life. The early part of my life, my early childhood was, you know, I have a lot of beautiful memories of it. Um, you know, very, you know, tight knit family, mom, dad, little brother, uh, dad who worked a lot, you know, had a great drive to to move the family forward, move himself forward, to take us from a, a spot where we not, we were never really, really hard up, but he took us from a spot where we didn't have a lot to working us towards abundance. Uh, so, you know, one of my, you know, some of my earliest memories are of my father's incredible work ethic and incredible drive to provide for his family while also continuing to grow and develop himself. And that was, I imagine, a big part of his vision for his life was to get a career, to progress, to start a family, you know, American dream. Didn't work out that way. Um, my parents split up when I was about... I think 10 years old or so. And a couple of years before that, we had moved from, um, you know, Metro Detroit out to uh, a town that was in a more rural environment, uh, which to me at the time was like moving out into the country. Um, and they did this with this idea that, you know, small town living, they'd, you know, fix the marriage, get the family into a different environment. It didn't work out that way. You know, things, things rapidly imploded and, you know, we went into what was one of the first real traumatic periods in my life, which is when my my parents separated and started to go through a several year long custody battle that um, included involvement from, you know, the court system, um, police at times, um, other, you know, other partners that my parents found uh, after separating that, you know, influenced the way that things went in ways that they should not have. Um, so once once that all started to settle down, you know, I say settle down, I don't know if those things ever really truly settled down, but I moved from, you know, through my adolescence and uh, took up martial arts at a pretty young age because of a de desire to want to defend both myself and my little brother as we were dealing with occasionally violent situations. Um, took up uh, running, stayed active through high school, and um, eventually when the time came to to flee the nest, so to speak, I, I flew as far north as I could. I went to uh, a town called Marquette, which is in the upper peninsula of Michigan. Um, and I did that because that was about the farthest that I could go and be at a state university, still getting in-state tuition, which in the United States is significantly diminished than when you cross state lines, um, and be about as far away from my home as I could. I wanted to, I wanted to get away. Um, I wanted to start to establish 
my own identity and independence. Wow. Wow. And where did that, um, how did it go when you were up there and you assumed it was that towards you, the latter part of your education, kind of university here? Yeah. So that was in, uh, 1996 that I moved up there. I was, uh, you know, just past my 18th birthday. Um, and that was where I began my, you know, secondary education or, you know, after, uh, you know, primary schools. And I stayed up there for about two years. And then I eventually came down to, you know, the lower part of the state again to finish my education at Michigan State University where I uh, studied psychology. Being up north was great. Um, the I found the challenge of the long, tremendously snowy winters to be... Um, a very, very cool feat of endurance uh, compared to what what I had been used to, um, you know, being separated from my family, most of my friends. It put me in a situation where I got to make an entirely new set of friends. I think that from the high school I graduated from, I think there was only one other person that went up to the same school. So I, I, I got to experience this kind of this kind of fresh start. So I really, really enjoyed that. Yeah. How how old were you at that point? How how old were you for the, that two year period? Uh, that would have been between like eighteen and twenty years old, and then I was twenty or so when I moved back down to the Lower Peninsula and uh, you know dove into studying psychology. It's interesting, actually. That's brought something up for me. I I'm trying to think when it was, but there's there's been a few times in my life where I've gone into a new community or uh, could be a sports club or, or um, just I'm, I'm trying to think what it was around um, but that sense that you can start afresh is something I definitely am aware of that I did as well the idea that you're, you're creating a new presence among people that don't know you and you can reset <laughs> yeah yeah. Uh, um, yeah so I, I'm looking at, I'm going to look into that because that's that's I, I'd forgotten all about that it's an interesting thing and, and something that I've noticed about myself is that I've sought out those resets periodically throughout the years. Um, you know, one of the first times I sought that was when I first moved away. And then I sought it again a couple of years later when I moved back. And then I sought another reset, so to speak, when I graduated college and, and moved yet again. And then as I've had various career moves, I've often looked at them as, you know, resets and or fresh starts. And I've come to realize later on, you know, at the uh, period of life I'm at now, that I think in each one of those situations prior to the reset, I started to approach some sort of perceived ceiling. And I don't know that at any of those times in my life, I was truly ready to break through that ceiling. So I would go to a different building. And I think a lot of people do that. I think a lot of people get to a certain point in their their development, where they start to approach, uh, you know, a, a glass ceiling, you know, something that we very much can break through. But, you know, glass has this interesting thing, you know, the closer you get to it, sometimes you see yourself in the reflection, and that can be scary. So, uh, you know, in hindsight, I, I'm very comfortable identifying the fact that I would get to a certain point, likely get afraid of what came next, and uh, then start over somewhere else instead. I think my instances of the similar scenario is probably related to work as well. I think it almost certainly is because I can't think of too many other environments it would have happened in. And I recognised for me there was always this sense of when I was about to 
there were, I got to a point in a in a in a workplace where I'd know there was I was uncomfortable being there. It was like I couldn't go any further, whether it would be with my own self, primarily I think around my own self development, or just this sense of there's I can't do I can't do more here. I can't progress here. I can't move forward. Um, and certainly in my last full time job in design, like twenty two years ago, when I when I left. Um, that had been around for four or five years and it had lasted that long because I had a family at that point. I had two young children um, with my wife at the time. And so that need to stay the resource for income to keep things flowing and working was 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 a big thing. Um, very, very interesting, though, the way that we we get challenged in different environments by the by those same triggers and those same. I, for me, it was very much a feeling, and then you'd look for why. Why did I? Why was I feeling this way? Um, it was never. It was never quite so logical. It was always the feeling first, and the logic of, and, and then rationalizing why there was that uncomfortable sensory thing going on. Yeah. Cool. So um, you're in the world of work now. At, at this point, and we're, we're in into the world of work. So, um, what are the key points of progression of through your adult life to up to today? Yeah. Um, you know, I would identify each one of those resets that I mentioned before as key points of progression uh, to to the extent that each time I felt like I would get closer and closer to that ceiling before I'd, I'd reset. And I like to imagine that I'm at a point now where I've since broken through those ceilings. And as I approach them, I I no longer seek to to reset. Rather, I seek to find my footing, create a strong foundation break through it and then look for the next one. Uh, that being said, you know, those those resets often came up in, in in changes. I would get to a certain point in an organization where, as you stated, I, I had the perception that I couldn't go any further. Whether or not that was actually true or if that was me, you know, uh, seeing that maybe to really get to the next level, it was a bigger challenge than I was prepared to take on or um, maybe I did not feel that I was worthy of taking it on. But one of the key things that I've noticed about myself in every line of work I've gone into, I tend to start near the bottom and then work my way up progressively and oftentimes quickly. Um, one of my first jobs after I, um, so I would say my second job after finishing schooling, uh, the first one was in the industry of psychology and I kind of, it broke my heart. So I, I moved away from that. Um, and that's something, you know, maybe we'll talk about later, but the first job that I kept and held on to, I started as a uh, running machines on a, in a book binding factory. Uh, and then, um, you know, a very general labor position after, uh, a couple of months, I think they, they started to see that I had more in me and I started to, to want more, uh, for a time, I actually really enjoyed the labor. It was a lot of, it was, it was fun. It was, it felt simple. Machines are, can be fickle. They're not emotional. Yeah. Yeah. Was this, was this one of the, cause I've got you in like a leather apron in the i'm thinking like the really old book binding i'm assuming this is more of a high-tech kind of 
more, almost like a printing press style machine, is it? What what kind of machinery was it? I'm intrigued. Yeah, yeah I was uh, specifically uh, running uh, coalators and laminators. So I would run the machines that would actually uh, take uh, a folded up piece of paper, which we'd call the signature, which is a number of pages in a book, line them all up in order, uh, and then it would be bound. So I ran the machine that put all the pages in order, and then I would run the machine that would uh, laminate the covers or put, you know, whatever kind of coding would go on a book to make it look nice. And uh, unfortunately, no, I did not have a really cool leather apron. Um, no, no. I'm gonna... <laughs> <laughs> it, would just, it would just have fit with the description we had at the start of our interview. <laughs> you know, the spirit, you know, with the, the heavy, kind of, I, I'm, you know, it's kind of, there's something really lovely about um, creating or building something as well. Did you have that sensory kind of feedback of like, oh, I made this kind of thing going on with that? Or was it or was it just like an industrial process that you just got done? Yeah, I, I would say it would be a little bit of both because, you know, when you start up the machine and the first couple of books come through, you know, there's this sense of, cool, I did that. That's that's running smoothly. And then yeah, like yeah. 500 more come through in rapid succession shortly thereafter. And then, they, <laughs> then it starts to seem like drops in a bucket. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there must be some satisfaction, I would think, to that process, um, like you see it all coming together. Yeah. And the machinery, the sh some of the machinery for that, I mean, I've, I've been in a, one of the big printing presses, a few big printing presses, actually, having had a graphic design background, you know, watching stuff going through on a four-color, six-color six press, you know, one inch shell at a time, and that how they ever design those things, I've got no idea, because it's just paper being moved around, heavy metal objects, with with you know micro precision um it's absolutely fascinating how they can be so precise and such a big device with just paper <laughs> what's, what's, uh, really what to me was more impressive than that is is if you ever got to see a paper mill where they actually make the paper and turn it from pulp into paper that what an incredible process with a, a very pungent odor <laughs> um i can imagine yeah, yeah yeah and and talk about big machines like i mean things the size of buildings um yeah what an incredible thing so i didn't mean to turn our podcast here into a conversation about the production of book and papers but this was this was an important part of uh my development and after i kind of came out of this labor position i got put into the office and in, in doing job costing and it was really not long after that that i had taken over and, and started running the department in which i was in and that became my general approach and i did that in two other careers as well where i would start in an effectively a labor position and within a few months i was in management and and redefining the way that that things were run in that particular organization when was the first time do you recognize yourself doing that? Was it in that first job or are we, do you think it was something to do with the psychology training where you allowed yourself to, you had the ability to let yourself flow into a you know, creative sort of role in what you were doing and, and allow that to be expressed in those roles that you had, you know, lower down the ladder in each? Sure. To be honest, I would love to say that, but I, I did not become aware of this pattern until it was uh, pointed at me, like right between the eyes a few years later, I think it was the third time I did this. Um, 
I did this for an organization in Ann Arbor, Mission, or Michigan called Zingerman's that was started off as a, a, a fine foods restaurant and deli that expanded into a multi-tiered organization that also included a corporate training arm. Now, this specific corporate training arm um, was teaching other businesses how to run their business in accordance with the way that Zingerman's was doing things. They were they're viewed as a very progressive organization. Um, one of the founders uh, likes to tell people he's a reformed anarchist. So a, a lot of the the way they run business is very non-conventional and it's been very successful. So they teach other people how to run their businesses like they do, whether or not it's in food service. I mean, we they work with all yeah. kinds of organizations. Within this corporate training arm, there was a man by the name of Stash Kazmierski, who ultimately became my first mentor in the self-development field. Now, I don't think he knew at first that he was my mentor. It, our relationship started off uh, very casually as occasionally having cups of coffee. I would get to work early, sit in the coffee shop and enjoy my coffee. And we started connecting and having really cool conversations. Eventually, I realized that he was the guy who had started or founded that particular arm of the organization. And the kind of training that he was doing was all in creating visions. It wasn't about run your business with this financial practice. It was sit down, create a vision for yourself, and then let's start talking about how to move towards that vision. So once I started writing my first vision was when I realized that I had previously approached ceilings and then ran for them once I realized that I didn't think I was the person who was capable of bursting through that ceiling. Right. So, so if so, I guess what we're saying here then is that those two, first two or three positions you had, had you had that vision written into those, into your traveling through that business, progressing a vision, a vision within that role, or for that business with you in it, <laughs> you may well have stayed at one of those earlier businesses and maybe flourished and had, uh, you know, other things take place uh, rather than run away. Yeah. Possibly, but I'm very happy that I ran. And <laughs> in, in, in hindsight, I, I landed at the, uh, you know, the best organization that I could have possibly landed at with one of the best mentors that I possibly could have had at that moment. Fantastic. And where did, uh, where did that take you? What, what happened? with this organization having, you know, and realized this vision process and saw how you could progress? Well, where, where it really took me was into a place of really starting to believe in myself and seeing that I could be the person who was capable of breaking through those ceilings. Um, the first time I, I wrote a vision for myself um, under the guidance of Stash, my, my vision was very meek. It was designed for me to get out of the place of discomfort that I was in. And the place I would, of discomfort I was in at the time was um, I was working a very exhausting labor job, unloading trucks and loading, you know, 50 pound boxes of corned beef into walk-in coolers all day um, and living alone after, uh, you know, coming out of a relationship that had uh, burned out quickly and just generally feeling unstable financially, emotionally, mentally. So I wrote this vision that was just all about putting band-aids on the things that were bothering me. And one time over our cup, cup of 
coffee and Sasha and I were reviewing the vision that I made. He, he very poignantly called me out on how I had stopped chasing monsters in my vision. Um, he told me that life is like a video game. When you stop running into monsters, it's time to realize you're going the wrong way. So he was the, he really helped me start to see that I needed to create a bigger vision for myself because when you create a vision for yourself, something magical can happen. It comes, mm. it comes to life. Uh, you know, over a period of a couple months, I had put band-aids on a lot of the things that were affecting me, but I wasn't really mm. moving. I wasn't really moving myself forward in any meaningful way. I had just taken myself out of the muck onto a slightly drier piece of land with a, you know, a little bit stronger foundation. There's, there's, I'm just going to say there's, there's actually quite a good, there's a very good point to highlight here. And, and maybe Jeffrey, I'm sure you can explain for us a little bit more deep, more deeply about this idea of the band aid the this the what you're actually doing when there's you know there's a problem let's say there's a problem whatever it is whatever the problem is you band-aid it with a particular set of phrases or narrative or a small vision shall we say or you adjust your perspective on it rather than create something new a bigger vision for your life or for your work what what, what is it about that difference in those two things how would you highlight that for for the listeners as it were yeah, for the, for it to put on a Band-Aid, you don't have to change. You don't have to grow. In order to to really progress into a, a bigger vision, you may have to change. You may have to grow. You may have to take on a new identity in order to accomplish that vision. To put on a Band-Aid, you don't need to change your identity at all. You can be the same person before and after you just have a Band-Aid on. Yeah, I think I'm just I'm thinking I'm thinking while you're speaking here. So I, I relate the band-aid to being, oh, it is the way it is, and I can feel about it. I can be this way about it. So the thing still stays there. Your identity still stays that way, or the problem still stays that way. But you're just going to choose to be a bit different about it. You're gonna you're gonna look at it this way instead. Um, and then the vision, putting something new down as a new statement of what you want is it's almost it's almost like you forget what you already had there in Britain in the first place you create something completely different around it as a, as a mental image as a set of words however you vision you create a vision and it ultimately diminishes what the perspective was prior to that um and for many many people you know whatever huge percentage of <laughs> 100 percent 90 plus 95 98 percent not quite sure exactly how many but most people don't understand that that leap from the band-aid to the vision is actually quite simple to do but it is a complete shift in how you relate to the the problem um and it takes that understanding that it is a shift and there's un it's, it's probably going to feel odd weird uncomfortable mm -hmm. strange to step into it um so yeah i think we can leave that at that because this is going to come up a bit more later i think as well in the conversation but right. i think the idea of because when people people do talk about a band-aid as a, a reference point of you know um almost staying still 
it's just temp it's almost like a temporary fix but it's not really changing anything or transforming anything no you're just covering something up yeah sorry brother i thought it was worth highlighting that and just getting into it a little bit more that's great i appreciate it you were still working packing the beef or moving the beef and now you've got a vision for the future yeah yeah very um I wrote a vision next that sent me into um, running the department that I was in. And it was a few months later that I took over purchasing for the entire organization. Um, so the the group of people that I had been previously working a part of, I was now I was now their leader. Um, and that this is where I very much discovered just how powerful it could be to allow yourself to effectively fantasize about being a few steps ahead of where you're at so you can start to bring those characteristics in yourself that you'd need in the future into the present yeah that's that's what a vision does it brings forth that energy and that that drive to progress doesn't it absolutely so i effectively have you know created a position for myself the uh you know the job that i wound up taking didn't didn't exist i i wrote it even better, <laughs> right? <laughs> you literally created it out of nothing. <laughs> yeah, and, and and how did that go? Oh, it went it went great. It was one of the best jobs I've ever had. Uh, I stayed there for almost ten years. Uh, it's ten years total. And when I left, it was not because I hit a ceiling or that I was afraid of what came next. When I left, it was because I wanted to take the identity that I had been building and really test it. I had been accumulating the skills and developing the skills to strike out on my own and to, to start my, at the time, what I imagined it to be is a personal training business, which has, you know, since morphed significantly into, uh, you know, more of a, a coaching business than personal training. But that was that was where it ended. It was when I hit a point that I, I really felt that I was ready. And the organization itself had come to, you know, had gone through a number of transitions. We had gone through a, a major build out that really expanded the offerings, you know, uh, physically, um, you know, as far as how many people the place could hold is, is you know, kitchen space, all, all of that. And once that major build out was done, I had the sense that my work here is done. I helped move the organization through this major construction project. We built a better world, so to speak. And I just had the sense that this world wasn't built for me to live in. Mm, yeah, I can, I can understand that. Yeah. Yeah. A sense of completion was there, wasn't it? It was, it was. And I, and, and it really, I really realized it after I had to fill a couple of positions and I went through a hiring process and I wound up hiring somebody. And I remember very shortly after hiring them, I just had this vision of them doing my job. I just could, I could just see it. It just made sense. I was like, this person is smart enough. They're driven enough. And once they learn some of these tools, like they're going to be able to step right up to where I'm at. And then the thought came up, okay, well, once they do that, where do I go? And that was when I decided that it was, it was time for me to move on. And it was, it was the best leaving of a job that I, I've ever experienced. 
And, um, you know, I, I told them, I think three or four months before I wound up actually leaving, I think I, I gave them notice that my intention was to leave in January and I didn't leave until May. Um, it was very amicable. We wanted to make sure that everything was in the right place. I still have a lot of uh, love and gratitude uh, towards this organization. Um, they still have the, the best sandwiches in town and... <laughs> Do you still go there, yeah? You still visit? On occasion, on occasion. It's in another part of the town. I don't get to nearly as often as I used to, but whenever I do, it's 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 always a little bit like coming home. Yeah, I can imagine being there for ten years and making it what it is today. It's certainly been a big part of that. So, personal training. What drew you to personal training from that role, or, or what were you? What was was other stuff going in the background with personal training while you were? in this role or developing the role you were just talking about? You know, the, ent the entire time, effectively, um, I mentioned when I was young that I got into martial arts. Um, shortly after completing secondary education, you know, after a couple of years of um, spending time playing music and adult beverage establishments, um, I, I, <laughs> I, I, I wound up having a, a knee surgery, actually. Um, and... You know, that's actually been a defining journey in my life. I've, I've now had, I think I've collected four, four knee surgeries total. Um, and this was the, uh, the second and third happened in rapid succession, uh, because the second failed and the third was to correct the, uh, the failure of the second. Um, but you know, it took me off my feet for a long time. Um, and it was in the rehabilitation process for that, that I started to fall in love with being at the gym again. There was something like I, I started looking forward to my rehab because I would go work out. I was like, and then I started get to see, the, you know, the redevelopment of previously atrophied muscles. So I was in like this very fortunate position where like I was very dedicated to my um, my physical therapy. So I got to see the results of it. And once I started to see the results of it, once I was like cleared for regular activity, I was like, well, I, I don't want to stop. But I also had the sense that like going into like a traditional like gym was not what I wanted to do. So I decided at that point to pick martial arts up again. And it wasn't long before I started assisting uh, coaching the kids classes and started and I took over teaching kids classes every weekend. So uh, for a number of years on the side, I was teaching uh, martial arts to young kids and and I just absolutely loved it. Um, then from there, the, one of the people that I was, uh, training under was the first person I ever saw with a kettlebell. And once I saw that, I was like, okay, I'm a, I need to learn some more of that because I started to see like, okay, this is a way I can lift weights that is, you know, seems a little bit more exciting to me. Um, it seems a little bit more dynamic and, Dare I say, even at the time, I I got the I, I started to see how it's a little bit more expressive, and that that is a something that would you know come out in a major way much later when I started getting into steel maze flow, which I'm sure we'll we'll talk about in detail real soon. Um, but even after things with this school that I was at, this martial arts school started to um, fizzle out, and I moved away from it. I retained this desire to still coach and train people. So that's really where that was born from. It's really interesting what you just said there about the 
and we, we've talked a reasonable amount before recording this and we understand each other's journey relatively you know decent and decent depth um but what really came out what you just said to me is and i'd not we not really understood this before you'd said about having previous knee surgeries surgeries before however what i can really see is that you really got to see the power of methodical strength and conditioning rehab work on yourself you saw the power and impact of it consistently applied over months and you know to to re to rehabilitate yourself to the point where you're fully functional and i know you know we can come to the latest surgery which was a great example of seeing you do that in recent times last year or maybe the year before now i can't remember when it was um certainly within the last 18 months and um that was a really powerful lesson for you to understand for yourself and understand how then that could be a contribution to other people wasn't it really that's what I really see there. Um, there's nothing like, I, I know myself, I've had numerous injuries and one of the, one of the, it is literally a baseline hallmark part of why I love doing health and fitness work is that you, you have an adverse adversity event, you injure yourself or something bad happens, you injure yourself in a, a particular way. And I, I actually get inspired when I'm injured. <laughs> and it's not like I go out to get injured. I don't want to be injured. But when you get injured with the right mindset and knowing what you're doing, you can find really interesting and intriguing ways to exercise, to rehabilitate and stay mobile and keep using your body. And and what I hear is that you saw that, that the, what you did, the work you did on recovering from those injuries was really a, a lead in to you seeing the application of that in a professional sense, in a, in a, in a way of being, being able to help people be fitter and healthier. Um, so, and I'd not, not recognized that before in certainly in around the, the relationship to your injuries. So I think that's a really important point that, to, to reflect on there for, for people listening. Um, you know, things happen difficulties happen you learn from them and who knows what how much better a person you're going to be personally inside your own self and what what other opportunities might come out of that adversity and and the, the if you like the discomfort of struggling through something um you learn a lot about yourself and it could be very applicable to helping others as well so i i love that and there's an expression i that 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 really lands with me and that is when you put the pressure on your tendencies manifest and I feel very fortunate that when when the pressure was on me, one of the things that manifested, um, you know, along admittedly, you know, you know, back then with some fairly negative self-talk and such, but one of the things that also manifested was a strong sense of self-discipline. Yeah, yeah, and that was certainly recognisable. I mean, I, um, you know, we've been on Instagram as buddies for for a year and a half plus now, and. I followed Jeffrey's journey as he rehabilitated from his most recent surgery, which has gone very well from what I understand. Um, and he was posting regularly, doing yoga, doing his rehab work. I watched him day upon day upon day, week upon week. So gradually get mobility back. And was it your left knee? Yes, it was, sir. Yeah, good memory. Um, 
gradually and it was just it i'm sure having that accountability of post i know we, we could all argue about is social media a good thing but having the accountability of expressing that via social media and putting out there and holding yourself to account publicly for those activities and getting them done not that you needed it necessarily yourself i don't think because you've got such a strong sense of doing things for yourself for the benefit of yourself in terms of self self care and self-development and self-awareness and self-realization um, and that's one of the big things uh, why I relate to you as one of my best buddies because you're a strong person to speak to on these things and we can bounce these kind of things off each other and assist each other in kind of growing together as well so I really appreciate that you are that person um, I'm, I'm going to keep praising you because you're a great guy. Thank you, brother. Much love. I, I appreciate it. And, you know, just to, to talk about the uh, the social media angle there for a second, you know, because you, we could we could we could spend the next several hours talking about, you know, the pros and cons, the goods and the evils of social yeah, media. Yeah. But one thing that came out of me being very forthcoming, vulnerable and expressive about the healing journey that I went through both from a you know a mindset and physical standpoint is I still get messages from people who are about to have the same surgery that I had uh, about a year and a half ago and I haven't mentioned the surgery on my social media in I don't know probably six seven months I hit the I hit the year mark on July 11th uh, of 2021 and effectively at that point, called it done. Um, now, for me in my own process, I still have some residual effects, some things I'm still working through as a result of it. But as far as my public process is concerned, it, it, that chapter came to a close. But that chapter is still called up by people who are going through similar things. And I've been able to, as a result of that, provide a lot of comfort and optimism towards people who are staring down the barrel of the same thing that I was, which was a very invasive, um, you know, bone sawing kind of operation that accompanies with it in the rehab process, a, a long period of rehab and a lot of discomfort and pain. The recovery of lengthening out your tendons and ligaments and everything, having been trapped in position for how long was it you it was strapped up in like locked out it was locked out pretty much for two months was it yeah you know i was actually like um you know if i was moving around it was locked up in a brace i think it was um i i kept the brace for a total of 12 weeks i had to wear that uh now for the last four weeks of it i was allowed to walk on it but um you know, I was allowed to keep a certain degree of flexion and was encouraged to start to redevelop flexion immediately, uh, which was which was part of the the pain in the process. Um, but yeah, it was uh, it was very I was very movement restricted for a long time. I mean, I was literally couch bound for the first week after surgery, um, and then after that, it was a very very gradual process of becoming more mobile, both with the knee itself and yeah, and just moving around. Yeah, yeah. I think you did an incredible job and it was a privilege to witness you, mostly on social media, of course, but we did talk about it at various times. Yeah, thank you. I mean, it was a very, it was a very successful process. I mean, at every point along the way, the, the, one of my favorite anecdotes about it was, I think it was, it was not quite eight weeks after my surgery. I had gone in for some checkups and x-rays and I remember the surgeon just staring at the x-rays and, you know, he was silent for like, 30 seconds. And when you're waiting for a surgeon to give you information, 30 seconds is an eternity. 
And then he'd like slowly turned to me and said, if you told me that this x-ray was from a patient six months out, I would believe you. I am very happy with my work. <laughs> and it was it was funny because I was expecting, you know, some sort of like comfort towards me or like something like that or like, you know, good job, you're killing it. And of course, he was like, I'm very happy with my work. And I'm like, good, because I'm very happy with mine, too. <laughs> <laughs> Teamwork, man. Yeah. Teamwork. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, um, so let so I think a little bit of backtracking to bring us up to date here. So um, you started the personal training, um, which would be what? How long ago was the personal training become your career, as it were? Two thousand fifteen is when I started, and it was still a little bit on the side until two thousand sixteen is when I made the transition into uh, full time. And what's the progress path been up until today, as it were? Oh, you know, a total linear straight shot right to the top. No, no, no. I'm just I'm being totally sarcastic. Um, for those of you who are listening and, and can't see the the stupid grin on my face as I said that, um, you know, it's it's been a, a very wavy path. You know, when they show you the, those diagrams of you know what we perceive success like, and that's that nice straight line that I was talking about. Yeah. And then when you they they're like, oh, this is what success is actually like, and it's that that wavy line. Frankly, I'm going to be honest and say I think that both are kind of bullshit, but, um, but I definitely followed more the second with a, a bit of a wavy line. Um, I struck out on my own and immediately discovered that I had no idea how one, how to run a business or how to be a really good coach. I was still trying to be a personal trainer. Um, and you know, I draw the distinction there big time. Um, and once I learned about it, I was like, oh yeah, I'm going to lean into being a coach. It just makes sense. Um, it's, it's what I had already been doing and, and all of my years of, you know, becoming a leader in the, my various careers and, and developing people, I was coaching them. So, you know, when you ask me how long I've been a full-time coach, you know, now I will tell you like 20 years. Um, but from like a business running my own business standpoint, it's more like almost six. Yeah. It's an interesting point, actually, that the personal trainer and coach, and, and it brings me just to what you've just said, the way I'd reflect on this myself is that my first, I believe my first coaching role was a, as a coach training um, advanced motorcycling, which was in 97, 98. So I would have been, God, about 30-ish, about 30 years old, 30, 31. And, um, and literally you're a coach. You take a guy out on his bike and you follow him around and you read his riding, you read the road, you read how he, he reads the road and you give feedback and make minor adjustments just like most other coaching practices, one simple thing at a time and you watch them begin to in, initiate that in the next ride and you, and you see them develop. Um, and that was the first official coaching role I had. And then I did a load of self-development stuff a couple of years later, and then that got me coaching individuals on the phone who I was working with in, short, in small teams and we'd kind of coach each other through, through stuff that we were working on. Then when I realized that fitness was the way forward i literally have always related myself as a coach in the fitness world and when i got into fitness i know deep down and i didn't really realize it at the time but i knew what i was trying to do was make a difference with people 
So my perception was always, and I, it took me a while. It took me several years to realize this is, I was always doing it for this bit rather than this bit. Mm. So it was all about how people saw themselves, the perspective right. they had, how they related to themselves um, through fitness. So by a, actually having people do things that were slightly uncomfortable, just a little bit uncomfortable, a bit different, a bit being out in the mud, being out in the weather, being outside doing stuff when they normally would just sit inside and watch the TV is all a mental game. So it was really all about the mental side. And, and for me, I've always been a coach. I've never been just telling people what to do or how to use their body or how to grow their glutes or get bigger arms or whatever, whatever you might relate to as a kind of physical sense thing. Um, and I think it's worth clarifying because sometimes people get caught up with the terminology sure. especially people outside of the business outside of this kind of environment as a professional um you know a coach is somebody that really is is there for you to be a whole person absolutely um, in every aspect of you to be flourishing uh, personal trainers are if you re relate to yourself to that as that i would say are people having people's bodies be what they want them to be it's more about the body than than the mind as, as much as anything i believe um, anyway, I'm I'm having yeah. another rant, uh, oh, Jeffrey. It's a it's a, it's it's a great one, and it's an important decision to make. And and I also want to give like lots of love and props to the personal trainers out there. You know, when I say I I started to identify yeah. more as a coach than a personal trainer, negation acknowledged. That's no slight whatsoever towards yeah, personal no, no. trainers. There are many incredible ones out there who are going to, you know, if you have physical goals, they're going to take you to amazing places. What I started realizing is that the way I wanted to serve and support the world was through other goals. And the some some physical goals may be a part of that, but honestly, the, you know, even as a movement coach at this stand at this point, I very rarely go after specific long-term physical goals with people. It's just not yeah what I do. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I, I, I work as, a, if you like, a personal trainer, so I have personal training clients, but I very much, very much relate to them as a coach. I'm still a coach in those, those environments, and there are those long-term goals for the physical side, and most of that is grounded in how they perceive the goal and how what their mental relationship is to the goal and why they actually want that goal, why it's a worthwhile end, you know, end, end, end goal, as it were is is around how they reflect on it not just and for me it comes down to that question again why yeah. <laughs> the classic question for me around personal training and coaching is if somebody comes to you and says i want abs why <laughs> um and it's not like it's not you know everybody's got abs anyway but I want my, you know, I want, I want to have a six pack or an eight pack or uh, it's well, okay, well, why do you want that? And, and, and that question in itself is, it could go pretty deep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and so, so I, I tend to get, um, and that doesn't mean by the way that all personal trainers are always about the look. It's not about that. It, you know, the rehab work with personal training is, is absolutely a, a, a great one to, you know, really classify that it's not just about the look. Um, but, I, I I get I I it, it, I get kind of caught up in the look being the thing a little bit because for me functionality and just general well being, um, being able to do life stuff with freedom and uh, you know lack of um, 
injury, shall we say, being able to look after yourself, which is why martial arts is a great thing because confidence helps in, you know, all sorts of situations on that. Um, but yeah, uh, yeah, back to you, Jeffrey. I could keep chantering away, you know, now. I'm English, what can I tell you? <laughs> I like that about you. I've always like, one thing I've enjoyed about our conversations is every once in a while, I'll, you'll you'll throw out an expression that's uh, you know your vernacular is a little bit different, and I'll, so I le I've learned some yeah. some new ones. One of my absolute favorites is I remember one time we got onto a call. I remember Sam saying, "Simon, how are you doing today?" And you just came back with, "Oh, I'm a bit knackered, really." And I was like, "Okay, I don't know what that word means, but by the way, on you said it, I got it. I understood. You're tired and cranky." And I'm pretty sure that's what that means. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 I, I re I'm really not quite sure where that comes from because knackers re relates to uh, a part of a male anatomy that is unique to a man that resides down the, right. downstairs, as it were. <laughs> that's a, <laughs> that's, okay, uh, I, I, did, really I didn't know sure. that. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not quite... Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, well, it really does, but I don't know where, where that... You know that reference comes from. I'm not sure where the origin of it, of it is. I'll, we'll have to. This is some research to be done here. It's, you know. <laughs> this is this is the stuff that matters. Yeah, exactly. This is the important conversation right now. <laughs> Bring us up to date, buddy. Then so got to the personal training, identified as a coach, and then we started playing around with different shaped toys. Right. I was just gonna say. I I think this takes us to the mace. I think we're at that we're at that part of the talk. Um, so yeah, the steel mace, man. Um, in it, during the time I was uh, pursuing personal training, I was also pursuing a bit of powerlifting, and I was also uh, very active in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Was uh, competing a bit, and not taking care of my body. I was engaging in two two activities on a daily basis that have the great potential, when when left unchecked, to have serious long-term effects on your body. Um, and basically what I was doing was I was not doing it the smart way. So, you know, the, to all the power lifters out there that also do jujitsu and take care of themselves, you're, you're on a great path. I was, I was on the version of this path that just led to destruction. And ultimately at a certain point, that's what I wanted. I was, I was taking things out on myself. I had bad self-talk. Um, I had bad stories about myself. Uh, I, I, I carried guilt and resentment towards myself. So I wanted to beat myself up and I found a great way to do that. Uh, two great ways to do that. But at a certain point, I couldn't do it anymore. I couldn't, I just, I couldn't. I was, I was just breaking down and I did yeah, start, out. yeah, breaking down, burning out, uh, was looking for ways to continue to destroy myself, but maybe with less impact. Um, and I started moving away from powerlifting and more into the realm of uh, functional strength and fitness reinvigorated that love for kettlebells that I had found many years prior. Um, and then as you stated, started looking at, you know, different shapes and, uh, messed around a bit with Indian clubs and steel clubs. And then I became aware of the steel mace. Um, the first one I saw was the Alex gray designed quad quad mace um the four-headed sculpture um the thing is like 27 pounds which for for a mace in the way that we move is pretty heavy um now for traditional mace swingers you know from where this came from that's not super heavy but for the way that we move and flow it that's that's heavy um so i i wanted one 
but I recognized I wasn't quite ready for the the heaviest available. So, um, and back in 2016, I think that was one of the heaviest ones that you could get. So I decided that I would get a 20 pound mace and I would try that instead. Um, that was a full acknowledgement. That's way lighter, right? Yeah, it's way lighter. <laughs> it's way lighter. Um, so I made a, what I did, I think, is I made a compromise with my ego. I think that's what happened. I'm, I'm pretty sure it was my ego that bought that 20 pound mace. Um, and then when I picked it up, I was like, okay, ego, you're out of your mind. The, uh, the math, the math doesn't check out the math of like, oh, I can snatch a 60. I need to interject here because I'm completely hundred percent with you. The first time I, uh, you know, all the recommendations were for maces and that is kilograms in the UK. So mm -hmm. there was um, a five, a seven and a half, a 10 and a 12 and a half and 15 available. Yeah. I got mine on Amazon. Yeah. You know, there's not very many of the, in fact, the, you could get them from on it from the States, but it'll take forever to get here and cost a lot more money. So you, yeah. I looked on Amazon, but I ordered, I thought, well, five kilo, no, five kilos, just way too light, which is like 11 pounds right. or whatever. Yep. And uh, so I can't, I compromise. I'll go for the seven and a half. It feels like I could get that one, be a little bit heavier, but it, it's only seven and a half kilos, right? Get it out of the box. And just as soon as I picked it up, no, this can't be said. There's just something about the weight distribution on the damn thing. And it just feels way, way heavier. Yeah. And it, as soon as you start trying to lift it at an angle, it, it it literally feels about three times heavier. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> and, and, I, and, I, and I had a, I, I, I'd not done any training with you by this point um, online. I'd, um, so I tried to just move it around, do a little bit of swinging with it, but it was way too heavy. So I immediately ordered the five kilo one. And, and that's the one I, I did literally all of the work with you on the certification that I did with you um, and all of the classes and whenever I've done it on my own here practicing. Um, so my 11 pound one is ample for me to do the kind of work that I know you predominantly do. Um, but it, it, it is, it, it was shopping, shocking. I'll never forget the moment I took the seven and a half kilo out of the box and tried to lift it. And it was literally like the, I'm what have I not eaten right for the last <laughs> week or whatever. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, well, I'm, I feel okay, but maybe I'm weak today. Yeah. I don't know what's going on. It was literally like a complete mental reset on the, on using a mace. So, um, yeah, and I can really understand where the ego, literally, it must have been the ego thing working. You just cannot believe that five kilo can be that heavy or feel that heavy. Well, you do the same thing, you know, when you when you bought your first kettlebell, you know, a lot of people lift weights, you know, um, thinking, oh, I can deadlift this much weight. So uh, this is the kettlebell I can get. And so I did some like math based on that. I'm like, OK, if I'm a, you know, I can snatch a 60 pound kettlebell. Uh, I'm sure I can handle a 20 pound mace. Yeah. And and maybe that math would check out if I had technique to back it up, but I didn't have that. Yeah. So um, the 20 pound mace was incredibly unruly. And even though I, I tried, I discovered that I needed a, a lighter mace. And I so I had another conversation with my ego. We, we compromised and I got uh, a 10 pound mace. And once I started moving around with that, that's when some things started to happen. That's when I started like to really connect 
back to my inner child. That's when I started to realize that what I was doing as I was, you know, working out was not that much different from what I did when I was a kid, when I would run off into the woods for hours at a time, find a stick, and that stick would be like my weapon for the day. It would be my imaginary sword, my bow staff, um, whatever it was. Um, and I, so I was connecting with this. With, lightsaber. So, yeah, totally. Lightsaber. Exactly. Yeah. hundred uh, percent. Thank you. And so I, um, I started connecting to my inner child with it and I still didn't know what I was doing, but I, I, but I recognized that something was, was happening. And that's when, you know, through perusing Instagram, um, I had had a maze for a, a couple of months. And that's when I uh, came across the gentleman who had become my my long time and still is my steel mace coach, Mr. Uh, Leo Acredis, the uh, uh, Leo Savage. And when I started to learn how to really flow in the, you know, in the educational system that Leo was developing, and, you know, at the time I started training with him, he didn't have an educational system. He was at that point, just a guy swinging this thing around, you know, so the education system kind of came after, I think, um, in part, I like to think as a result of people like me really gravitating towards it and saying, okay, how do we do this? Um, and I think when enough of us were asking that question, then the education followed. But it was once I started to learn how to flow that I really learned how to express. And there's that word that that I, I mentioned back when we were talking about my first experience with the kettlebell, because I just like, I saw something in the ballistic nature of the movement to me, like learning how to snatch a kettlebell was like learning how to throw a punch and learning how to throw yeah. a punch. There's, there can be some expression there. You know, we may be expressing some anger, um, you know, and for me, that's what it was. It was like, so when I was first learning kettlebells, it was like, this is one of the ways I'm expressing my anger. When I started moving with the mace, I realized that, sure, there were moments of expressing anger, but there was more. There was also moments of expressing happiness. There were moments of expressing beauty. And that's what really, really sucked me in. You know, we talk about how, you know, the the look can be important. Well, I don't know if it's the look Actually, I, I want to take that back. I do know it's not just the look, it's how you feel. And when I started moving that thing around in certain ways, I started to feel beautiful. One of the first times in my life, at, at in my mid-30s, a dude with a big ass beard and a bunch of tattoos. And at that time, I would, you know, I'd like had been lifting. I was bigger than I had like, I was like 25 pounds heavier than I am right now. And I felt beautiful. It's this dude who would be more concerned about a, a deadlift PR, I started to feel beautiful. And this cool thing happens when you feel beautiful. It's really hard to feel depressed. It's really hard to feel anxiety because that's feeling beautiful overcomes those things. It, it, it's, it's like feeling depressed in one way could be the shadow side, the opposite, the polar opposite of feeling beautiful. And so once that happened, man, I was all in on the steel mace flow. Once I realized that I could express beauty, uh, express happiness, and later started to learn how to tell stories. Yeah. How do you... And that leads... Oh, go ahead, please. 
Well, I, I, you know, I think I think you're about to say what I'm re- going to refer to, which is one of the things I loved about the certification work was the idea. And I've done, you know, I, I'm an ex karate car. Uh, I've boxed before. Uh, I've done self defense work. Um, I've done. I just remembered as earlier on when you were describing the initial work with the kettlebell and actually the Indian club bells. I did a um, one of Scott Sonnen's certification well they it was a day program over in the uk in london probably 12 13 years ago um using the indian indian club bells first time i'd ever used a bell uh, a longer bell than a normal kettlebell um but what i was just about to relate to was the idea that the story well the power the power comes from the floor assuming you're standing on the floor you could be jumping but primarily you're stood on the floor on the ground so you're grounded and the energy flows through a series of connections in your body out to the end of that mace and you make shapes and you do all magical movements um and i love the way that i think the storytelling leads out of that that sense of being grounded and flowing in different directions creating energy and and power it's about power output almost and the subtlety of that um and that's where um Clearly, the the exercise functionality exercise part of this is there, um, but it's it's almost like it's an infinite creative space physically, with the transfer of that through the mace as well. With the fact that it's such a pendulum, long pendulum, you can do all sorts of almost infinite range of movements, and that, that's where the the space for creativity comes in, isn't it? I believe so. Um, I like to say if you can feel it you can express it and we can express that in, in movement with the mace. Um, you know, there is, there is something magical about it. I don't find the same expression with kettlebells personally. I don't find the same expression with clubs. Um, I don't, I don't know what, what it is about the mace. I've got my theories in that it's, there's, there's something primal to it. I believe some of the first tools that mankind ever created were sticks with rocks at the end of them, whether that was to crack open shells, uh, you know, um, to, for hunting, for, you know, tilling soil or, or what, but I believe that there's this primal connection to this idea of a, a weight at the end of a stick. Um, so I don't know if it's because my theory is it's a bone. Yeah. My well, theory, it was a bone because yeah. a, a bone, you're a thigh bone, oh, of an yeah. animal, you know, big, big ball on the end. You can, it's heavier at one end, yeah. you know, I, I, I honestly think that's where it probably the idea of it originated from. Yeah. But as you say, it would have gravitated to getting a pointy rock on the end of something, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and using twine to, to link it all together somehow sure. and it, or mud even or whatever, you know, yeah. all sorts of things. And it's archetypal too. Yeah. I mean, the, um, you know, the, it's gone on from, you know, a, you know, potential hunting implement from a bone or a rock with a stick to ceremonial, you know, and, you know, ancient times, you know, Kings would often have a very ornate mace that was, um, you know, part of their, display of kingliness um so there's they've got a long history in various forms and i think that something about that that passed on in our in our lineage in our genes it's like it's encoded within us so i there is uh with a lot of people when they pick it up and they start to move and express with it it's like a switch goes off you connect to something that you might not have connected to before yeah 
really, I think, you know, if we looked at it in a very simple terminology here or terms is, um, you know, the leader of the pack, the tribe would have been the, 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 the strongest male with the strongest tools. <laughs> um, he'd be he'd effectively be the king of the tribe or the leader of the tribe. He'd be sat there on the, you know, sat on a rock with his stick, with his loincloth on, as it were, yeah. <laughs> or probably naked, actually, initially. Um, and it would be, you know, in our early days as humans, we would have fought for the leadership role. And yeah. so that's, that leads directly into that e energetics of what modern, you know, athletes or trainers or people that are using a mace may well be tapping into that, that thousands and thousands of years of... Um, living amongst tribes and, and groups of people that see that strength yeah. to be able to wield this this device as it were to um to express themselves and it's a yeah it's a deep genetic thing i would say is in there somewhere so yeah i i when i've done them when i've done the mace work i, I don't swing it very often as you probably are aware um i do i do use it but um i've always connected to the flowing aspect of it and the different, and like you say, the different energy, any energy and force that is applied in different positions, and it's amazing how you can just do simply holding the bell out. I'm sort of going to call it a bell. Yeah, it's most, all good. Um, to uh, an angle, you know, it, you, it's so great for for the physique as well. Just moving that relatively lightweight safely around you in a, in a, in a flowing way is is it's it's very very different to anything else um and it's a wonderful tool yeah i believe it's one thing that i really like about it from an energetic perspective is i think it's one of the you know the only movement disciplines that i've uh you know dabbled in that from that energetic space really combines uh, both the masculine and the feminine and finds the opportunities for harmony within them. Um, you know, flow by nature could be considered very feminine. And we're also using a blunt instrument. We're using something, a weapon. We're using a club. Uh, when you think about that, there's a little bit of masculine there as well. And then the way that we can train with it, we, you know, we can train in a very flowy and, and feminine way, but we can also create a lot of engagement and strength and within flows are reps and people forget that people forget sometimes that when you flow with the mace like you can be doing a lot of repetition and in that potential organization of repetition lies the opportunity to explore the masculine part of the practice and when you explore both then you find that that harmony of the divine yeah yeah absolutely yeah it's um yeah the work i've done with the mace i i could i definitely have a sense of that um you know molding numerous sets of reps on on a flow on the on the i mean i've done relatively small flows for the certification but you you add a few of those together back to back and your the energy you're using goes is 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 pretty high and it's an ebb it's, it's like a poetry in motion thing that you know uh, I, and I, i'd be interested to know actually how when you're creating a flow and maybe when you're redoing a flow do you use do you have a, a narrative that you relate to the movements while you're doing them 
do you do you actually have those sense do you have words that you you, you actually say as you're doing them i super love this question um and buckle up we're gonna be here a while <laughs> um so yes a hundred percent um i build flows in a number of ways um sometimes there's a very specific story that I want to work through and I start thinking about it as I'm moving and movements will come to me that fit the narrative. Mm. Sometimes I'm moving around with move, you know, just movement and then a story arises that fits with the movements. Um, one time when I was developing a flow for a class that I was going to teach, this old story popped in my mind of, um, you know, and it's kind of funny because sometimes the stories are emotional, sometimes they're not. Uh, but anyway, one time as I started developing this flow, I remember this time where I started a bar fight. And I wound up like calling <laughs> the flow the bar fight flow because there was, there was, some, there was some confidence in some of the movements of the flow. And so I was able to like kind of assign this narrative to it. It reminded me of this time where I felt a sense of confidence, a sense of overconfidence, if you will. Uh, and I leaned into that bravado. And what happened after that was, you know, a little bit of violence, um, as many bar fights and college students do, you know, broke up fairly quickly. Yeah. Um, you know, even though there was some detainment involved at the end of the the people who were scrapping were pretty okay with each other. So there wasn't really any, you know, massive fallout from this other than, you know, some legal stuff. But um, <laughs> that being said, I got really down on myself about the entire experience. So this particular flow of movements involved like this kind of like what we call a drop in swing where you swing the mace kind of backwards from the bottom of it. It's a fairly difficult maneuver and then later led into some squats. And in those squats represented me like getting down on myself. So, you know, and this is just an example of a time where I put together a series of movements. And then as I was practicing those series of movements, my mind went to the story that 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 created this narrative that met with the movements very well. Um, very recently, I was practicing uh, some divination. I like to draw cards from the uh, animal spirit deck, and I like to use these as like ways to inform how I move throughout a day. Um, but I had decided I'm going to make a flow inspired by whatever animal I draw from the deck. Um, so that day I drew a snake and I worked on a flow that included a bit of like coiling up of the body of creating that like David Weck style coil. Um, so, man, there are a number of ways that I have put together flows and they almost always have a narrative. Uh, I very rarely put together a flow where it's just like, oh, I do this move and then this move and then this move just because we're going to do these moves. Um, there's the story may come before the story may come after the story may come during story is always there. Yeah, that's really cool. Uh, and certainly from again, from your social media post, primarily, uh, the 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 statements that you make on those posts often reflect that you certainly have a story involved involved in in the, the flow that's in the video if you've shot a video or if it's you know shown um 
And I did think that that was probably happening. But we've actually never specifically talked about this in, in reality, have we? I wasn't sure if you did it, um, uh, you know, on all most of the flows you did or just occasionally or I had no no clue. So I'm, I'm really pleased to hear that, of course, because that I'm imagining that you find it easier to, and this isn't important, but it's probably easier to recall the flow because you have a story and narrative that you can speak when you're ahead and that will guide you back into remembering it um, like a reference point to the but it also has has a deeper sense of meaning to you doesn't it it, it brings the whole thing into a new dimension in terms of, in, of enacting it and redoing it and do it again and teaching it because it has some depth to it it's not just the moving <laughs> yeah it's like the personal trainer it's, it's like the personal trainer version is just the doing bit and the coach's version i know this is a, i'm paralleling with what we talked about earlier sure but the coach's version is has the attachment and the narrative and a story behind it as well yeah um so um that's wonderful i, I absolutely love that and i think that must have we must be up to date now, I'm reckoning. Uh, you know, there may be some other stuff you want to share about your professional work right now, where you are now, um, and then we'll go on to the next question. I think the only thing that, that's left out of there is the way that um, self-development really informed, you know, the way that I moved forward into the practice and the way that I've, you know, learned to integrate stories into the practice largely came from, you know, work I did outside of Steel Maze Flow. Um, very fortunately, you know, people who are oftentimes into and considerate of developing themselves are also into the movement practice, so they mesh very, very well together. Um, but, you know, the thing that happened when I struck out on my own and started to to try to figure out how to run a personal training business. And I realized that I didn't know <laughs> how to do it. Um, I, you know, I sought help and that's, you know, what led me to, um, you know, Mike Bledsoe's strong coach program where I wound up meeting you. And then when I finished that program, I, I had the sense that I've come a long ways and that I still had more to do. And that's what led me to, uh, connect with guys like Mark England and, you know, work extensively with him through his enlifted programs. Um, so, you know, the, the one piece of the journey that we hadn't talked about that is that very formative piece, which I very much view as a continuation one of my, you know, studies in psychology you know, to the, you know, the long-term coaching and development I've been doing with pe people for years, whether or not I would have identified it as such at the time. And um, there was something else, but I don't remember. It's, it's really intriguing. What I've noticed um, now also being, you know, doing the whole of the Unlifted curriculum as well as a strong coach like yourself is that um, I've, I've become much more aware of now looking back of the formative parts of my growth yeah. that didn't probably had moments of like inspiration. Well, I did. I had inspirational moments in my life and there wasn't enough energy or um, consistency from me, whatever. There was something that didn't make them as powerful on an ongoing basis at the time so they they became things that i transitioned through learned something about myself probably well it certainly grew and developed a little bit but then there was a sense that oh that you know there's still more to do yeah. or there's still something wrong with me <laughs> that, that was with me for a yeah. long time you know i'm not enough you know the, those key statements that a lot of us humans carry around with us um 
but looking back now um i still i relate to myself as always ready to learn always ready to unlearn something about myself in order to learn a different and better way and all of this stuff adds up like you've just declared everything adds together it's not just one magical thing uh, we're on a we're gradually building resilience and, and the, the ability to have a much more powerful life in our own bodies and uh, make the best of things yes, sir. cool well i guess we're up to date now buddy i think we made it <laughs> what single moment event or issue has produced the most impactful realization and opportunity to you to grow for you specifically what happened and how have you moved beyond it i love this question because it's so difficult to pick a single moment or event or issue. What I will tell you is that one of the biggest things that I've tried to move beyond and grow through is a longstanding um, struggle, I suppose would be the word, um, with depression and anxiety. And the moment that's coming to mind that produced an impactful, impactful realization is uh, in 2008, I'm in Toledo, Ohio, and I find myself the most out of breath I've ever been. I'm keeled over, turning green, and I want to vomit on the mat I'm standing on. I'm in between matches at my first Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu tournament. Uh, and even though I won the first match, I had already mentally lost the second match. The guy standing across from me that I was about to battle looked composed, fresh, and like the thought of vomiting was the furthest thing from his mind. <laughs> uh, about 30 seconds before the match begins, I hear this voice behind me that goes, Jeffrey, breathe, breathe like this. And without thinking, I did. And after doing that a couple times, I was back. I was present. My breath was still labored, but I was in control of it. The match began, and periodically I would hear this voice yell, breathe, breathe. And I would do it the entire match, just over and over. Now, normally when you're in a fight or a match and you have someone cornering you, they're giving you technical advice, telling you where to put this arm, what choke to go for. I didn't have that. I just had this guy telling me how to breathe, and that's all I needed. I won the match on points. It was a labored match, a hard-fought victory, but I didn't win the match. And when I stood up, even after a, a five-minute battle, I had my breath. So the cool thing was is that I realized that in a short period of time, how quickly I could change my state by exercising control over the breath. Cool. And the way that relates to depression and anxiety is sure in this one instance, this one breath technique helps me get through a flight. 
if a breath technique could help you get through a fight, that one technique, imagine what different techniques could do to get you through an anxious situation. What what could breathing do to to calm your nerves before doing a podcast, for instance? What what breathing could do to calm your nerves before giving a presentation at work? Or calm your nerves before you turn on Zoom to teach a steel mace class to 30 people. Or when you're in traffic and someone cuts you off and you have to down-regulate yourself quickly so you can continue to drive at 80 miles an hour safely. Or when you're in a, a caring confrontation with a loved one that's elevated in decibels a little bit. Or when you're sitting there by yourself and your self-talk is having a field day with your feelings and you're moving yourself into a crappy mood. It was the realization of like what I could change with breath. Fantastic. Fantastic. So that leads very nicely into the next question, I believe, because I think this is this is a similar vein here, I would think. If you could implement only one action or practice in times of adversity, what would it be and why? Oh, geez. I... <laughs> what we might want to do here is pick what would be the worst case scenario, I reckon, from the if it was in the list of what you've just yeah. said as examples. So uh, let's let's talk about a depressive episode or when the self-talk's running rife. What would you specifically do? What what practice as well around it? I'm assuming it's going to be around breath. It's, ab- it's absolutely going to be around breath. Um, you know, one of the th- amazing things about breathing is that it helps us create space. Uh, internally, mentally, I mean, literally, we're creating space inside of us as we inhale. I mean, that's what we're doing. We're filling up cavities. Um, but what it also does is help us, us create mental space. It starts to reduce the clutter and, and turn down some of the voices. The other thing that breath can do once we've created space is it can anchor statements hard. Meaning, if I use breath, when I'm in a state of depression, if I'm down in the pits of despair and I don't feel any love for myself and the thing that I need to feel in order to pull myself out of that is love for myself, if I take a deep breath and use that to anchor the statement of, I love myself, we're going to believe it. We're going to believe it way more than if I just sat there and said, I love myself. I could say that a hundred times, but if you say it one time, with breath and create the space, you will you will absolutely believe it more. Now you still may have to say it a few times. And you may have to say other things as well. If your depression is coming from a state of feeling not only like you don't love yourself, but also that you're not worthy of other people's love, you may have to also say, I am worthy or I am worthy of love. But if you anchor those statements with breath, they're going to go a lot further than if you just say them without breath. Now, obviously, we're always going to say it with breath because we're always breathing. But I'm talking about an intentional, deliberate breath. And it does not have to be 
a specific technique. I mean, sure, it's great if we can breathe from our abdomen up to our chest, up into the clavicle. That's great. But if it's just a deep breath, whatever that means to you, that's absolutely a much more powerful anchor than just the statement alone. This practice, I mean, this affirmation practice, like when we think of affirmations, oftentimes, you know, people, especially of our age group, are going to go to Saturday Night Live. They're going to think of Stuart Smalley standing in front of a mirror saying, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and gosh darn it, people like me. And that's ridiculed. They make a joke out of that. But that is powerful. It's powerful. Yeah, trust me, yeah. Yeah, it's absolutely powerful. Could you just say a little bit about why, do you, why, well, science is, science knows why, so it knows why, but just give us an insight into why the breathing is really important here. What is it about breathing that creates this, the, the, the desired outcome for, for doing what we've just described here? For sure. Well, um, if you don't do it, you'll die. So, <laughs> I mean, there you go. I mean, then you're not going to get any desired outcome. Um, but no, I mean, the reality is, is like, um, you know, the breath, you know, carries oxygen to every cell, every tissue in our body through, you know, a variety of different kinds of processes, you know, some through the blood, some through, you know, external exposure, et cetera, but through a variety of different types of very amazing processes, every cell in our entire body needs it. And that includes the gray matter up here the stuff that's responsible for all of our feelings. If I intentionally start feeding it, I'm going to be able to exert more intentional agency over it. Yeah, I love that. I really love that. And I'm going to add the bit here, which is that by using it what i relate to different breath practices and the the, the 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 change in breathing we're describing because we are there is a change in breathing we're going to take a deep breath as opposed to just be sat there thinking about what we're thinking about or going through well you know the guys just cut us up on the traffic we're not just sitting there we're then consciously taking a big breath in multiple times if need be actually getting the the breath flowing more and in doing that, you're changing the state, you're changing your relationship to your body and the, 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 the state of your mind, your, the, your state. So by stress state, your stress state is going to change slightly. And with the big breaths, you're actually allowing your body to expand and then relax. Whereas when you're tense, which is usually any of the stress states you define, you know, the traffic, the, um, the self-talk, the um, whatever I can't remember the other ones would describe it. Any stress state where you're feeling um, under pressure, what we class as stress, oh, I'm feeling stressed, whatever it might be, by expanding and breathing, we're actually escaping that stress state to a, a great degree in a physical sense. Um, so different breathing practices basically get you to change your stress. It's literally like a, a control mechanism to adjust your state. Mm -hmm your stress state. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You were a bit more technical than, you know, the description earlier, but, but the, every, it all adds up, but it's the simply put, just the way you describe, just take a big breath, say something that has positive impact on you as opposed to a negative impact or being in the impact of somebody else. Um, 
and just repeat that as many times as you wish to until you feel just a little bit different because right. you will if you keep doing it um and at times we, we at times i i mean you, you'll have i had this as well at times once just is not enough 10 times is just not enough and you just do a few more you don't have to do it for very long but a couple of minutes in and you will feel differently you know, it, it, you will feel better to, to even if it's just a half point one of a percent, you will feel a little bit better. Yeah, absolutely. And, and part of that will come from your focus, too, because now we've put the focus on to feeling better because to sit there and breathe, you know, however many times into a statement, you need to be focused on that statement. You're reducing the amount of other clutter. The, the volume on the voice that's creating the depression is starting to get turned down a little bit and your focus starts to be on the state that you want to create. When you put your focus on that, your body starts to create it for you. Yeah. You, you, yeah, you, you're taking, you have a control here to, to create something as opposed to be at the, the mercy of something, which is often, certainly, I know that's what depression feels like, that you're at the mercy of your own negative thoughts or stress around whatever's going on in life. And this gives you a level of control. Absolutely. Next question. If you have one, what is the one thing you tend to keep in the dark about yourself? The one thing I tend to keep in the dark about myself. You know, I'm a pretty open book. There's, there's not much that I feel like I need to keep in the dark about myself. I like to, to think that I um, am very forthcoming with, with who I am. Um, so nothing, nothing is really jumping out at me. Um, I've maybe at times had some questionable taste in music. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, not, nothing, nothing's really jumping out at me here. Um, cool. So all is good. So next question B, where are you winning in life right now? I'm winning in life in that. And I'm winning in a lot of places, man. Things are really good. I've uh, been doing a few podcasts lately. Um, I've recently been invited to do a speaking gig. Um, where I'm really winning is I'm winning with my voice in a way that I have, have not, um, you know, throughout the course of the rest of my life. Um, you know, one, one thing about me, and maybe this is something we could say I've kept in the dark about myself. Um, and I haven't talked about is that I never liked my voice, the sound of my voice. I didn't have much confidence in the things that I would say in the way that I said them. Uh, I've always viewed myself as from a literary perspective that I have a good command over the written language. Um, as you may see from my Instagram post, you know that I like to be very verbose. I like to repeat myself and uh, uh, I like to include little essays with, um, with a picture. But I have not carried a ton of confidence in the way that I speak or even the sound of my voice, you know, that old thing when you hear yourself speak, I remember on answering machines, you know, this thing that we used to have in the past. Uh, if I ever heard my voice on an answering machine, I would just be mortified. Like that's, that's what I sound like. And, and this goes back to um, in high school, you know, when I hit puberty, when, you know, the first thing that I experienced, the first symptom of my puberty was my voice dropped, my voice dropped early. So um, I got a 
you know, not that I have the deepest voice in the world, but I got a much deeper voice than my peers at a much earlier state. And I actually was significantly made fun of as a result of that. Um, so I was very self-conscious about it for a long time. So really over the last couple of years and a couple of months and even in the last few weeks and even into the last few days, it's like this, there's this exponential thing happening where I've started to lean into my own voice, lean into loving it, leaning into enjoying what I can do with it and the power that it carries. Even to the point where I had a student I did a guided meditation with the day before yesterday, when we came out of it, I asked him, how are you feeling? And the first thing he said to me is, your voice is powerful, man. And before that call, I was doing my affirmational breathing practice. And a couple of the affirmations I used that day were, I love my voice and my voice is powerful. Hmm. I'm going to be very direct about this. You are a different person today in the way you're speaking. Um, and we, we spoke a couple of weeks ago and the way you're delivering what you're saying is much, how can I put it? It's, it's, there's a, a confidence in the way you're, you're communicating today, which is, is a, I, a, I can see it. I can literally see it and hear it, obviously. Um, you received. and it, it, for me, it, it, it's not a huge leap, but it's, it's very noticeable. Mm. So Very glad to congratulations, my friend, for, for taking ownership of, of that because um, you do have a great voice. Thank you. I appreciate it. You that. really do have a great voice. Perfect. And um, congratulations on the work you've done there on that. That's that's really cool. And I'm looking forward to hearing how your uh, speaking engagement goes. Me too. As and when that happens. I'm really excited about it. I'll tell you more about that offline. Where do you experience a sense of impossible right now? And how do you intend to progress this into the realm of the possible? Um, and I'm just going to pre preface this. I think I might change this question. Um, I think the sense of impossible for many people doesn't land as like anything's impossible. Uh, you know, everything, there, there's always a possibility for something to, sure. to... And I think actually highlighting an impossibility is not particularly useful here because I think many people don't really actually relate to things being impossible so I might rephrase this question but please answer it yeah. anyway and we'll see where this goes <laughs> yeah um and and I it does land I, I get it um and the way I'm hearing or impossible is landing with me is is in alignment with overwhelm um because there's a number of things that I'm working on projects you know on on the you know that have been on the back burner that are all moving to the front burner um I'm working on, I'm working on a course, I'm working on a presentation, I'm working on a book like it. So I've got a number of big things that I'm working on and some of them all need to coalesce around the same time. So there's just this sense of like, well, I've got a lot to do and getting it all done does have this sense of like, there've been a couple of times in my, in the voice in my head has gone, that's impossible. Now, how I'm going to bring that into the realm of possibilities, man? Well, the cool thing about being a coach is that we learn the lesson that we love to help people, right? It's part of why we do what we do. I'm connected with a lot of coaches. I'm connected with a lot of amazing people who like to help people, which means I can get help. 
I don't have to do these things alone. And that's how I'm going to bring it into the realm of possibility. Because something else, some, another place in life that I'm winning is I'm a lot better at asking for help than I used to be. I have improved tremendously in the skill of asking for help. Um, and someone, a coach of mine recently said to me when I was feeling like I have to do everything by myself, I have to keep being this DIY show that I have been this whole time. He said to me, Jeffrey, who the fuck are you to, to not let someone else get the pleasure of helping you? Mr. Angelo Cisco, shout out to my brother who, yeah. <laughs> pretty good there i i got it yeah. yeah yeah you know who i'm talking about but um but yeah one of my coaches um very much did some work with me to help me get more comfortable with the idea of asking for help and not only more comfortable with but with it but actually experience joy in it i used to like feel this like sense of weakness if i had to ask for help it's because of like I'm insufficient somewhere, but now it's like a celebration because I like to help people and I get a great sense of joy when people ask me for help. So that tells me that some of the people I love are also going to experience joy if they have an opportunity to help me and who am I to rob them of that chance? Yeah, that's beautiful, isn't it? That's a beautiful, beautiful way of putting it. Um, I look forward to hearing how the possible become the impossible turns into possible, and there's a team of uh, cohorts, as it were, working together get your get your projects fulfilled for you. That's that's really cool. What question have I not asked you that you would like to be asked so you can answer now? Um. Well, how do I work with you, Jeff? How do I work with you, Jeff? And how can we get in touch with you? So the easiest way to to get a hold of me is going to be on my Instagram, which is jeffrey.oaks, J-E-F-F-R-E-Y dot O-C-H-S. Or you can find me on the internet at intentionandflow.net. These are going to be the easiest ways to reach me. Now, if you want to work with me, I've got a couple of options. Uh, I run a weekly steel mace flow and mindset class that meets at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Uh, we record classes for folks who can't make it and they get posted in a Slack channel. Now, this program is, while it's, you know, a public program, it's not something that you can just sign up for. You do have to reach out to me and contact me directly. We've got a really, really great community and, um, we're going to keep that, keep it that way. So if you're interested in training with me weekly and the community that I work with, hit me and we'll make it happen. Um, I also have some one-on-one -on -one opportunities where you can go to my scheduling site, which is going to be on my bio. And I do these sessions, which I call Choose Your Own Adventure, a little throwback to the Choose Your Own Adventure books I loved when I was a kid. And you can pick three pathways when you work with me. We can do steel mace movement. We can do breath training. Or we can do some mindset work. If you have an area in life that you need some support, I got you. So all you do is you go to the scheduler. You book your slot, you tell me what you want to do. We jump on a call and we do it. Beautiful. I love that. And then if you're I love uh, the simplicity of that. into uh, being a steel mace flow coach, I can certify you in level one and level two. We got mentorship programs available that can be done in person or online. So. Yeah, I'm gonna just gonna. I I cert, did a certification with you last year, Jeffrey, didn't I? Oh, was it last year? Was it? It was the year before, wasn't it? 
2020. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, God, where does the... My, 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 my relationship to time is... I think a lot of people have the same yeah. thing. I can't figure out... if it, It's very, very odd in terms of relating to time. It's not real. Uh, you know, in the last couple of years. But um, I, I did uh, I, I did my certification with Jeffrey online. Uh, he's in the States. I'm in the UK. And um, the video series is super, super simply broken down. And is really, really, really a it's a fantastic basic set of principles, which I loved because it makes it really easy to get your grounding in the practice. Um, and surprisingly, the first bit, there's no mace at all because it's all about you how you engage with the ground and how you position your body. And that's literally the grounding that you build the blocks on to the point where you lift the mace up and start moving. And it's a very different kind of practice if you've done kettlebells or even Indian club bells, um, any other kind of uh, physical training. It's very different to anything else. And both Leo, who runs currently, as far as I'm aware, still runs the video program, and Jeffrey, if you work with him directly, are superb coaches. Um, Jeffrey has a lovely, witty way about him um, and very simple and fun to be around as a coach. And... Um, I really love as well. I love taking part. And I'm going to say now I'm going to do some more of your flow classes. I may well join your community uh, that you've just described because I'd like to do some more uh, of that and get back into that. Um, and those flow classes I really loved because they kept me, I, you could basically mirror the coach, Jeffrey, on, 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 the, on the screen. Um, I just about had enough room in my front room and you can kind of play around with the spacing a little bit if you need to, if you've not got a lot of room. But you can still make it work in quite a small space. And just being online with other people, that's the one class that I've really enjoyed other than the the yoga class with um, another Jeffrey, mm. another Jeff A. Yeah. Jeffy, <laughs> who, who was my first podcast guest. Um, but yeah, I really recommend, um, do reach out to Jeffrey. He will happily speak to you about stuff and and fill you in um even if you're just you know five percent interested and you're looking to to get some feedback about how to progress these things in uh, with with himself so thank you jeffrey um we're pretty much rounded up there i think we can close proceedings i believe unless there's anything else you'd like to let us know about jeffrey no man i would just like to say thank you so much to uh you know you for hosting this podcast and to all of your listeners for the time and attention uh, i appreciate it greatly For contact details of today's guest, as well as my own, please check the show notes. Thank you for listening today, and I've one final request. Live your impossible life. Mm -hmm.